This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, for we have put our trust in you. Amen. You must be born again, for God so loved the world. If any of us know anything about the Christian faith, we know these two phrases. For many, born-again Christian is the way we might define ourselves as followers of Jesus. And John 3.16, well, it's hard to overstate its importance. It captures the earth-shattering truth of the gospel in just that one sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. These are words worth knowing, worth steeping in. This morning, I want to invite us to walk with Nicodemus, whose conversation with Jesus is the space in which we find these words. I've been curious about Nicodemus these past few weeks. The Sunday lectionary readings were put together intentionally by wise and thoughtful Christians to accompany us through the church year with all its seasons. And I was surprised to find Nicodemus in Lent. What's he doing here? My mind goes to lots of other biblical characters and stories that illustrate those Lenten themes like repentance, confession, wilderness, the way of the cross. Yet, Christians who went before us thought it prudent that we spend our time this week with Nicodemus. So let's trust the process and do that. We meet Nicodemus in the opening verses of our gospel reading from John 3. We read, There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night. So we know Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a member of the elite, the leaders of the Jewish faith. The Pharisees, known for their expertise in the scriptures and their scrupulosity toward keeping the Jewish law and traditions, were held in a place of prominence among the people. And though they were the religious leaders, following the faith of the Old Testament, the Pharisees turned out to be Jesus' harshest opposition during his years of ministry. Why? It wasn't because they were evil or didn't want to please God. They did. Every moment of their lives revolved around that. Yet the picture we see of them in the Gospels is as a group of people whose traditions and regulations seemed to have stamped out love. It seems to have stamped out an openness to God's miraculous movement in the world. The Pharisees were such experts at keeping their religion that they interpreted Jesus' words, actions, and miracles not as a fulfillment of what they believed and how they lived, but as a threat to it. The very first Pharisee we meet in John's Gospel, though, interestingly, is Nicodemus, and he is not antagonistic toward Jesus. In fact, something seems to be stirring in him. John, the storyteller, informs us that Nicodemus comes to speak with Jesus at night, which has a bit of a double meaning. Practically, 
it likely means that Nicodemus wanted to have this conversation in private, away from the public eye. He's hesitant, and given the circles he runs in, he's not exactly sure he wants to be seen with Jesus just yet. Fair enough, Nicodemus. But darkness also has a thematic meaning in John's gospel, and I think we're meant to see a bit of a commentary on Nicodemus's spiritual state. John opens his gospel declaring that Jesus' entrance into the world was a light bursting into the darkness. And toward the end of our reading from today, we see again the ideas of light and darkness juxtaposed. Light has come into the world, but some people would rather stay in the dark, not wanting to come to the light. But we read some do venture towards the light. So I think John is trying to tell us something here about Nicodemus. He's coming to Jesus in the cover of darkness. He's not ready to come to the light yet, but he's venturing toward it. Something seems to be stirring in him. He's here, but he's not here to challenge Jesus. It seems more like he desires something. Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. This is a statement, not even a question. But Nicodemus is asking something, isn't he? Does he even know what he's looking for? Maybe not. As keeper of the law, is he looking for salvation or simply some clarity? Maybe he's sensing that there is something important happening with this carpenter from Nazareth, and he doesn't want to miss it. We aren't told what his motivation is, and I find that comforting because Nicodemus could be any of us, cautiously approaching Jesus with a myriad of desires and fears and hesitations swirling about. What does Nicodemus desire? What is he afraid he might find? I wonder if you feel the hesitation of Nicodemus, approaching Jesus cautiously, in the privacy and safety of the night, as it were. What do you desire? What are you afraid you might find? Well, Jesus engages with Nicodemus, answering the question he didn't even ask, with the famous dialogue about being born again. We read in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now there's a bit of wordplay going on here. The Greek word has two meanings. It can mean again, as in all over again, repeated, or it can mean from above. And Bible translators have taken different opinions, which is why you've probably heard it both ways. Well, which does Jesus mean here? Is it possible he means both? Well, Nicodemus understands it to mean all over again. He's thinking pragmatically. How would that even work? Is it not physically impossible for me, an old man, to return to my mother's womb to be born all over again? And it seems like Jesus wants to invite Nicodemus to step out of a place of pragmatism, of having everything figured out, into a space of trust. We might say, out of his head and into his heart. As Jesus continues speaking, some of what he says seems to raise more questions than answers. And unless you all want to sit tight for a few hours to unpack it all, we'll have to set some of those things aside for another day. What we are directing our attention to this morning is that Jesus' imperative, what he is telling Nicodemus he must do, is an impossibility. 
you must be reborn. Is birth something the participant undergoes on purpose? What child has chosen to be born? Birth is something that happens to you, is it not? And yet, you must be born again, made new from above, from the Holy Spirit, who, like the wind, blows wherever he chooses. The point is, this thing which must happen to you, Nicodemus, is beyond your ability to manufacture. It's out of your reach, beyond your manipulation or your control. Dale Frederick Bruner, a biblical commentator, writes on this passage, The Spirit does not come from our personal depths within, nor from our passionately ascending mystical heights above. The new birth is sheer divine gift, as surprisingly unpredictable and as free as a fresh wind. What can Nicodemus or any of us do then? How can we be born again? Well, the invitation from Jesus seems to be to give up control or the illusion of control and receive the new life that God wants to offer. Nicodemus, the accomplished Pharisee, must submit to the reality that he cannot save himself any more than a baby can choose to be born. New life from the womb and from the Holy Spirit is something that happens to you. All that's required of you is surrender. To take the image a step further, and we hinted at this earlier with the children, the truth of it is that in the delivery room, while the child simply surrenders to the process of being born, someone is certainly working very hard, aren't they? New life does not come about free of cost. Those of us who are mothers know that well. Just because the infant isn't paying the cost doesn't mean it isn't being paid. I think it's amazing that in multiple places in the scriptures, God images himself as a laboring mother. Further along in John's gospel, in chapter 16, Jesus makes a connection between his hour, his impending death on the cross, and the hour of a woman giving birth. And the connection he makes is that of great anguish giving way to great joy. That life is given to one at great cost to another. Yet the joy of birth is so great that the price is one gladly paid. And here we arrive at John 3.16, that great and maddeningly simple articulation of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. That call on us to believe is not primarily cognitive assent, believing that Jesus came from God, believing that what he says is true. Nicodemus seems to be comfortable with believing that Jesus came from God. He was tracking on some level, theologically. But to believe, as Jesus means it here, is more. It's entrusting, giving yourself over to be made new. Entrusting yourself to Jesus, the living person, as an infant entrusts themselves to their mother. You can't do it yourself, Nicodemus. You must be born again. This is impossible if it were up to you, but you are not the one in the delivery room who needs to do the work. God so loved Nicodemus 
that he sent his only son so that Nicodemus might put his trust in him and receive eternal life. The fact that Nicodemus is here tonight having this conversation with Jesus is evidence that he is responding already to the stirring of the Spirit. Will he dive in all the way, give himself fully to Jesus? Well, John, in his storytelling, continues from here and leaves Nicodemus to think about what he's heard. We aren't told where he goes from there. Did he leave his conversation with Jesus in a huff? Did he repent and believe the good news? We don't actually witness Nicodemus coming to faith, but we do find him later in John's gospel, and he doesn't seem to be the same man that he was when he started. Nicodemus appears as a character in the gospel story twice more, and only very briefly. In John chapter 7, we find the Pharisees having, trying to have Jesus arrested by the temple guards, one of many attempts to bring charges against Jesus. And guess who is there? Nicodemus is named as one of the Pharisees, but we actually see him pushing back against his brethren, back against the Pharisees, making a subtle defense of Jesus. He reminds his law-keeping friends that they are, though they are trying to have Jesus arrested on the spot, their laws entitle Jesus to a hearing before making a judgment. To which the Pharisees respond, surely you're not one of them, are you, Nicodemus? Interesting. Many months later, as we well know, Jesus is arrested and put to death publicly by crucifixion. In John chapter 19, we read that a disciple named Joseph of Arimathea takes upon himself the task of burying Jesus. This is recorded in all four gospel stories, but only John includes this next bit. In John 19.39, we read that Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, John reminds us, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds. We read that they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews, and laid him in a tomb. Nicodemus, originally too hesitant to be near Jesus except by the cover of night, is once again with Jesus in the dark. This time holding Jesus' brutally tortured, crucified body in his very hands, preparing him reverently for burial. It would be difficult to convince me that we are not looking upon a changed person. We don't see the moment that Nicodemus comes to faith. We don't know whether or where or how Nicodemus received that new birth by the Spirit. Maybe it was a dramatic event. Maybe it was in small measures along the way. The great hope in this story is seeing that what the Spirit was stirring in the heart of Nicodemus way back at the start does finally come to fruition. That seed of faith eventually sprouts. And the hope is that if God can work with Nicodemus in that way, he can do the same with us. He can do the same with those we love. Our hope is in the promise that he wants to do the same in each of us. For God so loved us, each of us, that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. I wonder if the story of Nicodemus has been assigned to us in the season of Lent as an encouragement, an invitation to those of us who are not sure, not ready yet. 
And that includes all of us in varying measures. It's for those of you who at the start, like Nicodemus, haven't yet received Christ's invitation to be made new. And it's also for those of us who have been Christians a long time, who have maybe forgotten that being made new is much more of a continual process than it is a singular event. I first believed the gospel as a small child and was baptized, yet I need to hear this invitation all the same. Jess, entrust yourself to me. I need to hear and remember that I am no more capable of being in control than when I first believed. That there are still lots of making new that God desires for me, even now that the Spirit is prompting in me. If, as Father Alex preached last Sunday, Lent is a season of healing, a springtime for the soul, then Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is a germinating seed just about to sprout. When we first meet him, he's unsure. He's hesitant, he's not ready to buy in. But the spirit was stirring. Springtime was in motion. The hard ground was getting softer. My hope for all of us is that our journey in Lent would continue in tandem with this journey towards spring. Those of us who have tulips in our yards expect a visit soon from those early blooms. While it may be weeks, even months, before other kinds of flowers and new growth appear, God has patience and works with each of us as we are. So let Nicodemus give you hope that there's time. There's time for you, and there's time for those you love. Being made new doesn't need to happen all at once. That's what this story in the season of Lent invites us to learn. Nicodemus was allowed to approach Jesus hesitantly asking questions, even if he didn't know what he was looking for. You, likewise, are allowed. As the weather gets warmer and the ground gets softer, I wonder if we might pay attention to where the ground is softening in and around us, in our hearts. What might the Holy Spirit be stirring in you? Are you trying to make change happen yourself? Or could you do well to sit with Jesus' call to Nicodemus to simply give yourself over in trust. Don't hear this, of course, as a warrant for passivity. Believing and trusting ourselves is active. The difference is we are invited to entrust ourselves to the one who is already working in us, already loving us. For God so loved you that he sent his only son. For the remaining weeks in Lent, as we look ahead toward the celebration of Easter, what if we stopped trying to work for what God wants to give us? A tulip doesn't burst from the ground by striving, by trying really hard. It comes to life in response to the warmth of spring when the ground is ready. Where do you sense the ground of your heart warming? How might you respond? Winter is giving way to spring. May it be so in our souls. Thanks be to God.